Welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We hope that you enjoy this episode of our podcast. Russia threatened with war as US declares Ukraine could be invaded at any point. The Biden administration is weighing new options, including providing more arms to Ukraine to resist a Russian occupation, to try to raise the costs for Russian President Vladimir Putin should he decide to invade the country. In addition to considering how to help the Ukrainian military and government fend off an invasion, the US is evaluating options for bolstering Ukrainian forces' ability to resist a potential Russian occupation. That includes potentially providing the Ukrainian army with additional ammunition, mortars, javelin anti-tank missiles, and anti-aircraft missile systems, which would likely come from NATO allies. In the meantime, U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken is heading to Ukraine to meet President Volodymyr Zelensky. Scientists warn against artificially dimming the sun to fight global warming. Plans to dim the sun's rays in order to slow the effects of global warming are potentially dangerous and should be forbidden by governments, a group of scientists and policy experts have said. One of the plans includes injecting billions of sulfur particles into the atmosphere but the success of any plan would be far outweighed by the drawbacks. Solar geoengineering deployment cannot be governed globally in a fair, inclusive and effective manner said the open letter, published in the journal Wires Climate Change as reported by phys.org. We therefore call for immediate political action from governments the United Nations and other actors to prevent the normalization of solar geoengineering as a climate policy option. It is likely that artificially dimming the sun could disrupt monsoons in South Asia and Africa as well as causing issues with crops, that said, other areas may benefit, as it would hamper the probability of drought in southern Africa. The technology would also do nothing to stop the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which is changing the chemistry of the seas considerably. Such hopes for a rapid solution could, as the letter states, disincentivize governments, businesses and societies to do their utmost to achieve decarbonization or carbon neutrality as soon as possible. The letter calls for an international non-use agreement to block funding of these technologies, as well as refusing to grant patents for them. Cummings celebrates as government wins appeal over ruling it broke law. Dominic Cummings has celebrated the government winning its appeal over ruling it broke the law by awarding a £560,000 contract to a firm founded by his friends. The PM's former chief advisor said the Court of Appeal's decision was total vindication for his actions during the pandemic. He also mocked the head of the Good Law Project which brought the case against him, saying, Lord Chief Justice crushes Kimono Fox Killer. Anti-Brexit barrister Jolion Morm was thrust into the spotlight in 2019 when he butchered the animal with a baseball bat while wearing his wife's gown. He tweeted after today's ruling he felt the decision was wrong and his group would be asking to go to the Supreme Court. The High Court last year ruled the Cabinet Office's awarding of a contract to market research firm Public First was unlawful because it gave rise to apparent bias.
it was given a contract in June, 2024 focus groups and other research, including testing public health slogans such as stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. The Good Law Project brought a case over the links between the firm's founders and Mr Cummings as well as then-Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove. In the original ruling, Mrs Justice Afarel found the apparent bias was not due to the existing relationships between Mr Cummings and Public First. She said it was because of a failure to consider any other research agency and record the objective criteria used in the selection. But in a judgment on Tuesday, the Court of Appeal has now overturned the previous ruling. Michael Gove has won a £100 bet with Fox killing barrister Jolie on Morm after wagering on the outcome of the case. The pair in July said whichever side lost the court hearing would have to send the money to a charity of the other side's choosing. Mr Gove said in the summer he would chose the RSPCA. The cabinet minister tweeted a link this morning to the animal charity's website to help Mr. Morm. Mr. Cummings said the move was total vindication for my decisions on moving super speedy on procurement to save lives. He added, remember all the ignorant nonsense from pundits forward slash minor social scientists forward slash Romaniacs. In a reference to good law project chief Mr. Morm, he said. Lord Chief Justice crushes Kimono Fox Killer. He said the court case showed the need for the government to urgently put in place clear procurement rules for emergencies. Boris Johnson's former aide said it was good news the Court of Appeal had seen sense and said I behaved lawfully. But it was hopeless having cases dragged through the courts causing massive uncertainty forward slash delays forward slash costs across Whitehall. Calling for a serious emergency procurement system, Mr Cummings said he had to move V-fast in totally opaque legal miasma. Jolie on Morm QC was called to the bar in 1997 and made a Queen's Council in 2015. The pro-Remain barrister was behind a string of legal challenges to Brexit and supported Gina Miller's High Court battle to force the government to give MPs a vote on triggering Article 50. Mr. Morm is a prolific tweeter who previously claimed staying in the single market and customs union are key steps in avoiding an economic breakdown that could deliver fascism. He writes for a number of publications about tax and policy, and has spoken openly about his adoption and estrangement from his author father David Benedictus. On his website he writes he was born in the UK, moved to New Zealand with his mother when he was one before being adopted. He worked as a cleaner and a secretary aged 16 and later returned to England to live with an old family friend in a pit village in the northeast. Alongside my professional practice, I have a long-standing commitment to equality and diversity he writes, adding. I am politically unaffiliated although I have advised the Labour Party on tax policy, in particular around non-DOMs, and have an active interest in better informed tax policy across the political spectrum. Mr Morm is director of the Good Law Project. The Lord Chief Justice Lord Burnett, sitting with Lord Justice Coulson and Lady Justice Carr, found the original judgment was an unprecedented outcome.
Lord Burnett said, the fair-minded and reasonably informed observer would not have concluded that a failure to carry out a comparative exercise of the type identified by the judge created a real possibility that the decision-maker was biased. He continued, quite apart from Mr. Cummings, experienced civil servants, knew what services were urgently needed in a public health emergency and were intimately familiar with the market for their provision. At a hearing in November, Sir James E.D.Q.C., for the Cabinet Office, said the High Court judge was wrong to say the department needed to consider other market research agencies in order to avoid the appearance of bias. He continued, an informed observer would understand that there is an emergency or urgency process built into the system which obviates the need to do the comparative exercise between different potential bidders. Jason Koppel QC, for the Good Law Project, had argued the contract award was a clear and obvious case of apparent bias. The campaign group brought its own appeal after the High Court judge ruled against the Good Law Project on two grounds, including it was wrong to grant such a long contract to public first. However, this cross-appeal was dismissed. Following the ruling, Good Law Project Director Mr. Maugham said the group intended to take the case to the UK's highest court. Mr. Maugham tweeted today, This is the first substantive judgment against us since 2019. We think, with respect, it's wrong and we are asking for permission to go to the Supreme Court. We have linked to a copy of the arguments we have filed as to why the High Court was right and the Court of Appeal is wrong which form the basis for our application for permission to go to the Supreme Court. Absolutely right to say that in the PPE case we won only on the main issue, the illegality of the VIP lane. We will also be appealing in respect of a number of the other issues. We will, obviously publish our grounds of appeal as soon as they are finalized. Mr. Maugham was known for fighting a series of legal cases against Brexit after the referendum. But he hit headlines in 2019 when he revealed he dispatched the fox the day after Christmas in his central London garden wearing his wife's satin kimono. He said he bought the baseball bat to discourage intruders but ended up using it to kill the animal caught in the protective netting around his chickens. He tweeted, Already this morning I have killed a fox with a baseball bat. How's your boxing day going? No one should relish killing animals, and I certainly didn't. But if you haven't been up close to a large trapped fox, perhaps reserve judgment. To those concerned I have broken the law, I called and spoke to the RSPCA and left my contact details. American confuses the DLR with the London Underground and Londoners are in stitches. London's transport system is an iconic aspect of the city. Whether it's the colours and design of the London Underground map, the red double-decker bus, or even the inevitable dreaded delays, it's an essential part of the fabric of the city. Those who call the capital their home are intimately acquainted with it all. But for those visiting, it is most likely quite an overwhelming system. And one American has made a rookie error on TikTok, confusing the DLR with the tube.
a light-hearted tune plays in the background as they ask, Can someone please tell me why they call the subway in the UK the London Underground when it's actually above ground? But the video camera zooms in on the DLR chugging along its line across a bridge. Of course, Londoners were quick to pounce on the mistake, in hysterics and also in credulity. Many posted deadpan comments like, that's the DLR, not underground and, mate that's not the underground. While others could not contain their laughter, with one exclaiming, three crying laughing emojis, just when I thought this couldn't get any funnier. Oh and that's called the DLR, Docklands Light Railway, it's separate from the underground, thumbs up emoji, dot. Another didn't even deign to fully respond, just writing, lol. Three crying laughing emojis, dot. Meanwhile, different TikTok users cracked various versions of the joke, chill it's not like you get a subway on the subway, laughing sweating emoji, dot. Another said, can someone tell me why the Americans call their subway a train station, when it's clearly a fast food restaurant. Inside the eerie village on the front line of Ukraine's conflict with Russia. A battered army ambulance pulls up in the freezing, snowy yard of a long-since abandoned factory in eastern Ukraine that is now the headquarters of the army's 24th Battalion. The Soviet-era vehicle has been converted into a troop carrier, I say converted, in fact I mean everything has been torn out, plywood lines its interior walls and benches have been placed inside to sit on. Four fairly jolly Ukrainian soldiers and four of us, squeeze inside the back. Everyone is wearing body armor so it's a tight fit. The suspension groans as the driver guns the engine and we speed out into the snow-covered countryside, and the front lines of the war between Ukraine's military and Russian-backed separatist rebels. While the world waits to see if Russia is actually going to join the conflict and invade Ukraine with its highly sophisticated and generously armed and equipped army, I was waiting to see if this dilapidated machine would actually make the 10 miles to the front. As my mind wandered back to a possible Russian invasion, I looked at the soldiers crammed into a van that was barely roadworthy and felt sorry for them. Their unit, equipped as it is probably wouldn't last the first contact. I peered through a gap in the plywood into the front cab and beyond into the icy wastelands of the battlefield. We passed through heavily mined farmlands, passing red signs warning of the danger of stepping or driving off the road. The driver slowed briefly then shot forward as fast as he could on the slippery surface. The enemy position is all along this side one of the soldiers told us, pointing to the right side. They shoot at vehicles along here, so the driver goes quickly he said, and then laughed. The soldiers were taking us to a village we had heard about but needed special permission to visit. Novoleksandrovka is closed to the outside world. It's in the no man's land of the demarcation line that separates the two sides. Once home to 200 people, only 11 remain. The fighting here is intense and has been for the eight years this conflict has raged. We wanted to meet the residents, find out what it's like living on the front line, 
and basically find out why on earth they have stayed, and what they will do if indeed the Russians do invade. We bumped our way to our stopping point, a couple of decrepit-looking houses with a few soldiers standing outside. We emerged into a snowstorm and looked out across the rest of the village. A collection of badly damaged and largely abandoned single-story houses, covered in snow and ice. The soldiers indicated we should follow them, and we went off to find some of the inhabitants. The eerie quiet of an almost completely abandoned former community was broken by the thud of explosions and the rat-tat-tat of machine gun fire. It was nearby, but not so near that we needed to take cover. It's often like this in war zones, you can hear the fighting, but you can't see it. Sometimes, like now, when it's windy and snowy, you can't even tell what direction it's coming from. It's unsettling, it's disconcerting, and it's actually quite scary. There is nothing in this town apart from the damaged houses, no shops, no electricity, no running water. Even the community's only medical clinic has been destroyed. The soldiers explained that most of the people who have stayed behind rarely leave their homes, particularly in the bitterly cold winters of this country, but mainly because of the fighting. They say the residents are hostages of the situation. A number of the doors we knocked on, in clearly occupied houses, simply weren't answered. Our Ukrainian producer Azad Safarov said he had been warned that people would be very suspicious of our presence, and too scared to talk. But Helena, a sprightly 73-year-old who lives by herself, was more than happy to welcome us inside. Above her front door, she has written in chalk domestic residence. It's a message for soldiers and separatists alike, that her home is not abandoned. She showed me how all her windows were smashed by bombs during the worst fighting. She said at times it was so bad that she lay next to her brick oven for protection, clutching her important documents and prepared to run if she has to. There's no electricity, no shops or medical services, but she's got nowhere to go. More importantly, she doesn't want to go. Helena is repairing her home the windows first, and then the damaged ceiling. I'm used to it here. I feel good. There are few of us left here, but people are still here. Well, I like it here, she explained. I have everything in the garden, I plant, I work. The only thing is that I have to walk far distances because there is no transport. Helena doesn't believe Russia will invade but said that if they do, she plans to stay, because she doesn't think they'd be interested in harming her. The army point out it really is too dangerous for anyone to stay here. But they won't force them to leave. From overwatch positions on the roofs of houses in the village, the soldiers keep a continuous eye on the separatist positions 100 or so meters away. Lieutenant Victor Bailikov a senior officer in the 24th Battalion, reflected the views of many soldiers we have met on this trip, and previous ones here. They say they've been at war for eight years anyway, and rarely, if ever, discuss a Russian invasion, although they accept it could happen. 
there is always a risk that there will be some kind of attack from the enemy. That's why we're here. It is likely, the probability exists. A human slave held prisoner in shed for 40 years on Caravan Park near Carlisle. A man has been jailed for keeping a human slave prisoner in a six-foot shed on a caravan park for more than 40 years. Peter Swales, 56, kept a vulnerable worker who worked for £10 a day in a green shed with conditions worse than his family's dog, investigators said. Investigators from the Gangmasters and Labour Abuse Authority, GLAA, rescued the victim, then 58 from the shed in October 2018 after receiving a tip-off to a confidential helpline. A search warrant was executed at the Hadrian's Caravan Park near Carlisle on October 3 and the defendant's father, also Peter Swales, was arrested in his static caravan on suspicion of offences under the Modern Slavery Act 2015. His response to the officers when he was informed he was under arrest was, not all this slavery thing again. GLAA and National Crime Agency officers continued their searches and approached a small green wooden shed next to the caravan. After they knocked on the door, they were greeted by the victim. He appeared disheveled and agitated, telling officers that he had lived there for 40 years. The victim then asked if he could have a wash, indicating that he washed in a kitchen sink in a building next to his shed. The shed itself was in poor condition when explored by detectives. There was only one window which could not be fully closed and the shed was in complete darkness when the doors were shut. An old electric heater with damaged wiring was discarded in the corner of the shed, and there was no other heating inside. By contrast, officers noted that another shed on site used for the family dog to sleep in was in a far better state. In interviews, the victim stated that he worked on farms, with the work consisting of painting, slating and tarmacking. He said he was paid as little as £10 per day. Swale Sr. died in 2021 aged 81, shortly before standing trial. The victim was accepted into the government's National Referral Mechanism, NRM, on the day he was rescued and continues to receive specialist support to this day. He now lives in supported accommodation outside of Cumbria. GLAA Senior Investigating Officer Martin Plimmer said, This has been a really harrowing investigation. In all my years in law enforcement, I have never known a modern slavery case where the exploitation has taken place over such a long period of time. It is pleasing to see that Swales has finally done the right thing and pleaded guilty. I would like to pay tribute to the dedication and professionalism of my investigators in dealing with what has been a very complex investigation, one that has thrown up numerous challenges along the way. First and foremost in my mind at this time though is the victim. Let's remember that he has been exploited for all his adult life up until just a few years ago. He is now in his early 60s. This is something that even now I struggle to comprehend. For four decades, he was in effect kept as a slave. 
we are sadly all too aware of the fact that he will be traumatized by his experience for the rest of his life. I am committed to ensuring he continues to have the regular, consistent support he needs which allows him to lead as normal a life as he can in the circumstances. Tragedy of Vicar of Dublin cast as six main characters have died in real life. Six cast members from much-loved sitcom The Vicar of Dublin have now died. Gary Waldhorn, who played Councillor David Horton, is the latest star of the BBC show to have passed away. The 78-year-old's death was announced on 10 January in a statement from his son, Josh. His famous co-star Dawn French, who played Vicar Geraldine Granger, said she was heartbroken at the news. Dawn and James Fleet, who played bumbling Hugo Horton in the hit show which ran from 1994 to 2007, are the only actors still with us. Gary's death follows the passing of fellow Vicar of Dublin cast members including Liz Smith, Roger Lloyd Pack and Emma Chambers, who died at the age of just 53. Here we look back at what happened to the Vicar of Dublin cast and the losses they have suffered since 2014. Gary Waldhorn Actor Gary Waldhorn famously played haughty councillor David Horton in The Vicar of Dublin. He passed away aged 78 on 10 January 2022. Announcing the sad news of his death, his son Josh said, classically trained, it was the theatre where he truly flourished and he leaves a legacy of entertainment that saw him frequent the boards of Broadway, the West End and our living rooms on the telly. He leaves behind his two grandsons, Cooper and Bailey and his son Josh. We will all miss him terribly. The late star recently appeared in a Christmas special, The Vicar of Dublin in Lockdown, alongside co-star Dawn and James Fleet, who plays his son Hugo. He also appeared in classics like Brush Strokes, where he played Lionel Bainbridge from 1986 until 1991. Trevor Peacock Who can forget Trevor Peacock's stunning comic performance as Jim Trout in the BBC sitcom? Known for his famous catchphrase no 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 yes Trevor won a huge fan base and prompted many impersonations of his character. Sadly he was diagnosed with dementia in 2009, which led to him retiring from acting due to his declining health. His last appearance on screen was in a 2015 Vicar of Dublin comic relief special. On 8 March 2021 Trevor's death was confirmed by his agent who said he had passed away at the age of 89 from a dementia-related illness. Trevor's co-star Dawn French paid tribute to her friend saying, Night Trev. I love you. Emma Chambers Much-loved actress Emma Chambers captured the hearts of the nation for her portrayal of Dippy Alice Tinker on The Vicar of Dublin. It was her most iconic role and landed her the British Comedy Award for Best Actress in 1998. Another career highlight was when she starred in Notting Hill as Honey Thacker, the younger sister of Hugh Grant's main character. Sadly Emma passed away aged just 53 in February 2018 after suffering a heart attack. Co-star Dawn French 
who played her best friend on the show, said, Emma was a very bright spark and the most loyal and loving friend anyone could wish for. I will miss her very much. She also posted a tweet in dedication with a picture from the show, writing, I was regularly humped like this by the unique and beautiful spark that was Emma Chambers. I never minded. I loved her. A lot. John Bluthel. Best known for his role as Frank Pickle in the long-running series, actor John Bluthel died aged 89 in November 2018. His character was known for telling very long stories to people in the village. But his most memorable and most iconic storyline was when Frank came out as gay. Leading the tributes was Dawn French who tweeted, Tons of happy laughs remembered today. Cheeky, naughty, hilarious. Bye darling Bluey. Liz Smith. Liz Smith is probably best known as the Nana from another BBC sitcom, The Royal Family. She made her acting debut at the ripe old age of 49 in 1971 in a Mike Lee film, but it was her starring turn in The Vicar of Dibley which made her a household name. Her role as Letitia Cropley in the series made her an instant hit with viewers, but her character died in the Easter special episode in 1996. Sadly Liz passed away at the age of 95 in December 2016. Roger Lloyd Pack The late great Roger Lloyd Pack was already well known as Trigger from Only Fools and Horses when he joined the cast of The Vicar of Dibley. And he won fans over even more with his portrayal of Farmer Owen Newitt. Although he played slow-witted characters on screen, Roger was said to be very intelligent in real life. Off-screen Roger was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he died at home surrounded by his wife and close family in January 2014 at the age of 69. Missing Belgian Boy, 4 found dead in the Netherlands after being kidnapped by babysitter. A missing four-year-old Belgian boy was found dead after allegedly being kidnapped by a babysitter, Dutch police have announced, days after his disappearance sparked a mammoth search operation spanning two countries. The body of Dean Verberk Moes was discovered in the Netherlands on Nieltjejans, an artificial island in Zeeland province, on Monday night. He had been reported missing by his family after his babysitter failed to drop him off at his grandparents' house on Thursday. The police have confirmed that a 34-year-old Belgian man identified as Dave Decay has been arrested in connection to the incident. He was found in the Dutch town of Meerkirk, around 120 kilometers, 75 miles, northeast of where the boy's body was found. Belgian prosecutors said he had previously been given a 10-year jail sentence for the abuse of a two-year-old boy leading to his death. His sentence ended in December 2018. The man was last seen with the boy on Wednesday in the Belgian city of saint Nicolas, near Antwerp. Dean Verberk Moses' mother, Elk, had previously made an appeal for her boy's safe return. She told Belgian TV that Dave Decay had regularly looked after her the boy and his younger sister, when Dave was babysitting for them they always said they'd mucked about and played games with him. 
a Dutch police statement said, the police investigation pointed to a possible crime scene on Monday evening, and a police helicopter also joined the search. Around 10.00 p.m., 2100 GMT, the lifeless body of a child was found. The police added, we thank everybody who helped and are sending condolences to his family. We hope that you have enjoyed our podcast. We thank you for your support. We hope to see you again next time.